Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. Some of you want that tree, don't you? I can see that already. It's for sale. I want to ask you to go ahead and take your Bibles, and we're going to turn to one verse of Scripture here today, initially, immediately, and that's in James chapter number 5. James chapter number 5, and it's just one verse. Now, it only sets the context for us today. It doesn't really set the context. It actually brings a little clarity to part of the context for us, and it's tag-teaming with last week's message. And as I was in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, last week, I'll be in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, here in a few moments. But the, the Apostle James mentions the individual who was the subject matter of our discussion last week, and then he certainly, his experience has come to the forefront uh, in my own personal devotions this week, and um, certainly, hopefully, in your heart's preparation today as well. But look at this 17th verse with me. It's in James chapter number 5. If you would, let's go ahead and stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of God just to, just to fulfill our tradition, and how many of you know traditions are, are good things? They can become bad things. But Paul exhorts us to hold to the traditions handed to us by the elders. And so here in James chapter 5, verse number 17, it says, Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. Stop right there. And right there, I know that you know it was a pastor, but there's so much life in that last about his prayer when he knelt and prayed and, and uh, petitioned God. He did. But I want you to catch what it says. He was a man subject to like passions or with a nature like ours, the New King James says, he was a man like we are, man. He had the ups and downs, highs and lows. And here in just a few moments, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where there's a question that was posed by God to Elijah when he found himself at Horeb. And that question is very familiar to us. We'll read it in the text here shortly, but it simply says, again, King James English, what doest thou here, Elijah? What doest thou here? And that's what was on my heart here today. And there's... There's an application to this that I want to ask you to do something with me. I want, I want you to find yourself in this text today, if you would. Every one of us. I mean, I'm talking because I really believe when I said uh, open the service that today was going to be a very special day. Um, I really believe that. I believe it's going to be a very special day. And I think our altar service has only thus just began. I really mean that. I believe that there's going to be an extension of our worship and we'll have a return and an opportunity for God to speak to us in a way that sets us back into our spiritual equilibrium, puts us back in the rightful place, gives us that new perspective. So he asked Elijah this question, what doest thou here? So remember this, as we get ready to pray, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as you are. He was a man just like we are. He had the ups and downs, highs and lows, all the emotions, all the frustrations, the, the strengths and the weaknesses. And we're going to look at his life and a little sliver, a narrow point of his life, and we're going to see if we can't find ourselves somewhere along that journey. Father, I love you, and I'm humbled to be here in this house, and I pray today, and I just, I just want to join with JoJo's prayer. It's simple, and I want to join with it. Let preaching be easy in the house. That's a simple prayer today, Father, and I add my agreement to that. God, today, let the ears of the people be prepared to receive, and let me, as the communicator, God, I pray, despite all my weaknesses and my limitations, would you, I pray, God, make me as the oracles of God, in Jesus' name, and everyone said amen and amen. So if you enjoy, which I hope that you do, if you brought your Bible with you, 
If you want to go ahead and swing back and kind of open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter number 19. And then you can kind of just leave it open there. And I've given in the sound booth, and I appreciate all that help us in the sound booth. Don't you, church family, and their, their uh, ability to share things and search and research and put information for us just to enhance your worship experience, to allow you to be uh, taught and instructed uh, easier and to, to connect with the text easier. But that doesn't need to become a substitute for just having your Bible with you. There's still something very powerful about the sound of a page being turned. There's still something powerful about the familiarity with the passage or a place in Scripture. So if you have that with you, kind of keep it open there, and we're going to kind of just see if we can't just pick up just a little bit. And I know that JoJo altered his prayer uh, today based upon what happened in the worship service because in private he had asked me if it would be out of, um, would it be in harmony with what I was preaching if he had alluded to Elijah's prayer that's recorded in, uh, in, in 1 Kings chapter number 18. And last week I went into this particular passage and I shared with you a little bit about the context of Ahab and Jezebel and how there was an introduction of Baal worship. And that it had become, uh, it was being promoted especially by Jezebel who was the, the wife of Ahab and he had, she, she had influenced him in his religious convictions. And so they, they were moving beyond just, there was a moving beyond just corrupting the true worship of Yahweh to literally replacing it. There was, an, there, was, there was just an outright attack of the prophets of the Lord. People were dying. Now, if I can pause and stop and talk to you about that for just a moment, I think if you're not careful, you'll read the scriptures almost like a storybook, if you're not careful at times. Because, you know, there are stories there, but you know what, this is, this is recorded human history. These were real events. What that means is, is that if it, when, when, you, when you factor that in, that meant that there was a school of prophets or there were prophetic voices that would speak, but when that persecution started, then the, the leaders would empower the army to go and search out the prophetic voices, and they would literally come into services just like this, and they would take out the prophet. They would take him out, and they would lead him somewhere, and they would kill him. Sometimes they might just kill him right in front of the, of the worshipers. This was real. This was, this was life. This is not, again, just something that you read to your children. Now, this was a, a picture of what actually took place in the life and times of the history of ancient Israel. And so we understand that God raised up this prophetic voice, and he stood down Ahab. He stood down Elijah, or, or, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And he, through his prayer, he had locked up heaven. Heavens gave no rain. And the rain was shut off for three years. The subsequent response was a drought. And uh, then there was this showdown on Mount Carmel. And we went through that. That's what 1 Kings chapter number 18 is. And the prophet uh, prayed, and he asked God to answer by fire, and God's power fell. I mean, in, pre in, the, in, in the presence of all the apostate priests and of, a, of an entire people group, the people of Israel, who couldn't make up their mind. They just couldn't make up their mind. Is Baal God or is Yahweh God? And remember how Elijah had started this whole, uh, you know, this, this whole encounter. He said, the God that answers by fire, let him be God. That's a fair, uh, you know, response. Whoever, whoever can show that he's got the power to move in the heavenlies, then let that one be the one that you worship. 
And the scriptural record is that he prayed, he sought God, and God dropped fire right there on the, consumed the sacrifice. Not only did it consume the sacrifice, it, it ate up the very stones the sacrifices had been made on and leaked up, the Bible says, licked up all the water that had been poured in a trench around it. The people were dumbfounded right there at the power of God. And Elijah then goes and he takes the 400 apostate priests down to a particular brook and they are slain there in in kind of a counter move to begin to try to rid the land of the apostate teaching of the Baal uh, worshipers and the Baal priesthood. And that's where the, the, the narrative, and so Elijah then goes back up on the mountain and he begins to pray. And we didn't go into all this, so he prays again. And when he prays again, he asks the Lord to send rain. And then after a period of prayer and continuing in prayer, eventually took seven times that he sent his servant to go and look out over the Mediterranean Sea when he eventually saw a cloud begin to rise. And he knew there was a sound. He, even to, he told his servant, go tell Ahab there's the sound of an abundance of rain. And so Ahab gets in his chariot and he makes his way back to his palace, perhaps at Jezreel. And the Bible says that Elijah, as the rains begin to fall, Elijah, an aged or a semi-aged prophet of God, runs in front of him 17 miles from Mount Carmel back to uh, the, the place where he was en route to. 17 miles he goes. It's supernatural. It's a supernatural. You can just see him there. Like the bionic man. I know some of you are saying, well, you're going way back, Pastor Brown. I know. I know that was my world. And so, and so he's out, he's out running, you know, the chariot who's driving hard. Ahab's driving it hard, but he can't outrun the prophet. And so it seems like there's this is a, a, a cumulative moment, a cumulative moment, excuse me, a cumulative moment of where the goodness of God has been poured out and Baal is identified as not a true God and the people are going to, the people are going to respond. There's going to be revival. It looks like it's just right on the edge of revival. And then I want you to see what begins to happen. Chapter number 19, verse number one, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Verse 1, chapter 19. And then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not, my, thy, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when Elijah saw that and heard that, he arose, look at this, and went for his life. What a contrast from the events that had taken place on the mountain when Elijah seemed to be so emboldened to withstand apostasy and then actually take the 400 prophets down to the brook and whether he was the one that actually slew the prophets. And I know this is violent for us. And we're like, Pastor, my mind just doesn't get around it. I know, but it was true to the culture. They, they opposed one another. And the only way that they actually to, could remove or rid was to annihilate. And so, and so, and then now we see one word from Jezebel sends the prophet on a 95-mile journey to Beersheba. And Beersheba why did he go to Beersheba? That's a great question. I think it unfolds for us there in the third verse when he arose and he went for his life. He came to Beersheba. If you look at the map of ancient Israel, Beersheba, Beersheba was the, the, the southernmost part of Judah. So he actually left the land of Israel to go into the land of Judah, and he went to the southernmost region. It's desert. He's doing everything that he can to escape the watchful eye of Jezebel and her lynchmen that she has sent to try to kill the prophet. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, 
an interesting story, and we're going to dialogue. And then he was only there for one day before he goes out into the wilderness. He leaves his servant at Beersheba, and he just goes out into the wilderness, and he sits down. So you know what this is? This is a juniper tree today. We're going to talk about the juniper tree in just a minute, so don't forget that. That's what this is. It's a reminder of the prophet who sat down and eventually lay down to sleep under the juniper tree. And now here's where I'm going to make it real personal to you for just a moment. And the reason why you can see what's going on in Elijah's life. Something's not right. Because when we have a picture of Elijah in our minds, we have a picture of this bold, provocative prophet who stands before people and he's courageous and he's unmoving and he's got a word from God and he has the ability to unlock heaven and he's got the ability to call fire down from heaven. And yet now we see him with one threat from the queen fleeing from his life. And then when he sat down under the juniper tree, if you'll read his words, if we go down just a little bit farther, here's what it says in the fourth verse. Let's go ahead and read that. He prayed a prayer. This prayer doesn't look anything like the prayer he prayed the day before. The day before, he was like, I want to call on the name of the Lord. You're the God of fire and answer by fire and show these apostates that there is no God in Israel, but Yahweh God and Baal is nothing but a demon and a devil and ideology and he's, he's, he's nothing, he doesn't exist. He just, and, but you're the real God, the living God, answer by fire and fire failed. You know there was celebration and rejoicing and now the prophet that prayed with such boldness and authority and saw heaven open and rain fall and people rejoicing because they hadn't seen rain in three years and now the fields are going to grow again and there's going to be harvest and there's going to be rejoicing and there's going to be celebration and he's laying down and his prayer is, dear God, I can't do it anymore. I can't go another day. I can't preach another sermon. I can't teach another class. I can't pray another prayer. I can't stand up and defend the true religion against the apostate religion. I'll tell you what, many of us have been under the juniper tree more times than we want to realize. We want to be honest about. Let me just tell you real quickly about what makes this personal to me. Anytime I preach a message last week that has what's typically called political overtones, I went back and I listened to my message again, like I always do. And anytime I preach a message that has political overtones, I feel the weight, unlike any other thing that I do. And it causes me to ask myself hard questions. Maybe I miss God. Maybe I shouldn't address those subjects. Maybe, you know, I look, then I, and then I start asking, then I start measuring myself up against other churches that some churches don't touch. They won't touch the issues that I talked about last week. And you'll get, a, you'll get cookie and coffee in the foyer, but you won't get any sermon that addresses such heavy issues as abortion. Right, or the the, the LGBT uh, agenda that we see uh, in, our, in our culture or the other things that, are, that have political connotations. And any time that I do, I'm telling you, I feel this weight. I believe it's very much akin to the weight that Elijah felt when that one word of accusation came, threat from Jezebel. So just to add a little bit of clarity, and I'm not going there today. This message, has not, this message is not a repeat in any capacity of last week. I'm going to share with you one little sliver that's going to bring a little bit of clarification to a statement that I made, and then I'm moving way up off of it because it's far more than that. This is a personal message about you responding to who God's called you to be. That's what this is. You've got to find yourself. 
Before you could find yourself in the text, I had to find myself in the text. And so I went, you know, I made a statement last week, and I used the term, and I tried to bring clarity to it, and I said liberalism is a term that has deep political connotations to it. But I shared with you in sincerity that I said I have a broader application of it, not just politically. And I shared with you that I believe that there is a cultural mindset that's being propagated to the American culture that doesn't originate just in the political world. I share with you that I, I believe it comes from Hollywood, um, the music industry, the sports industry. It's so much media-related. Hello? And then I made this statement. Some of you probably didn't catch this. Some of you already probably cut me off and just said, well, I don't have time for this type of message, which some of you may have not. I said, I believe it's propagated as well through our education, through philosophies and through our educational system. And I want to share with you, I want to validate that for just, I want to share with you what I mean by that just real quickly. So I found an article this week, and I'm going to just highlight it just real quickly. It was, it came to us from, you know, a faith and ethics type of organization. It says, are American colleges and universities training up a new generation in perverse sexual ideology? Increasingly, the answer is yes. So this author gives us a 16-page response to her, her, her research of seeking to answer that question by going and interviewing many colleges and looking at things that have happened. She starts out, though, with what happened at the University of Oregon Health Center because they now have a new, they have for, for, if you go to the University of Oregon, you get a new sex app for your phone if you want it. You get a new sex app. And so the new sex app is not high-tech calorie counter or a fitness tool. It's dubbed sex positive. It communicates lots of information about sex, sexually transmitted diseases, and safe sex precautions. But that's not all that it does. It, it delivers not only information, but also particularly warped sexual ideology parading under the sex-positive manner. In essence, the, here's the attempt of the sex app. It's to eliminate shame, embrace sexuality as an experience that offers the possibility for pleasure, intimacy, joy, and self-discovery either with another person or by yourself. To the adolescent mind, it sounds wonderful, the grown-up equivalent of eating chocolate cake all day and never getting sick or gaining a pound. The app operates under the guise offering a judgment-free, sex-positive information about sexual health. Now, I could go on and on just with that one particular example of what's taking place at uh, the University of Oregon, but in this particular study, it gives us more from various college campuses, even historically a college campus that we would think of as more conservative, like Texas A&M University, who in 2011 dealt with a very similar situation. Just real quickly, if you don't mind, that I might just kind of bring that particular one up uh, in, in instance because it dealt with some very, very difficult issues. Um, it said in this, it sponsored its fourth Safe and Fun Sex Seminar presented by the fabulous sex therapist Kay Crow and open to all students, suggested ages 18 and up, and the topic was butt play. I'm not, I just want you to know, I don't make this stuff up. I'm just trying to be a voice. If at any bit at all, I'm going to put it away because I don't want to go there today. All I try to do when I do that is just to try to be a voice that shares with you and sheds the light of what's happening all around us. Because these are the new minds, the young adults that have left mom and dad and they're seated in college campuses and college universities and classes and they're being propagated with an agenda. And that agenda is, there is no God, there are no absolute morals. 
It's how you feel. That's God to you. And whatever you want to do. And, and, and there's, a, there's a conflict that's happening. And Joe may have said it earlier. If we could see what happens in the spirit. I want you to go back to, to Mount Carmel for a moment. Let me tell you. I believe demons have power. And so what, what I believe happened that day. That when Elijah prayed. Before he prayed. When the prophets of Baal were cutting themselves on the altar. And asking for Baal to answer by fire. I believe there were angels at work. That were holding back demonic powers because the demons could have moved as well and called a flash of lightning or a thunder enough to convince the simple-minded people that Baal was God. But God sent angels. That's my belief. God sent warring angels that held them at bay and limited their ability to, to confuse the people on that particular day. And so I take this stance because, church family, I believe that some of those things are happening in our generation. They're happening right in front of us. And the reason why I feel that I have a, a biblical responsibility is because I, I believe that it's my spiritual responsibility to you to warn you, to cause you to be sober, to ask you to pray, to stand against the darkness, to lift up your voice, to let it affect every part of your person, the way that you interact with other people, the way that you vote, your political involvements, the programs that you watch. The things you read, I think it matters. But anytime I preach, I feel like I'm 95 miles the next day on Monday. The next day on Tuesday. You know where I find myself? I find myself in the wilderness in Beersheba, sitting under a juniper tree. The weight of it begins to settle upon my heart. I can preach about any other subject, any other thing, even tub subjects. But if it's any wise related politically... I feel that in my own heart and find myself sitting right here under this juniper tree. This great prophet of God found himself there and he prayed a prayer. He said, God, I've done all I can do. I'm tired. I don't want to do it anymore. You know, he said, well, Pastor, did you? He despaired of life. I've never despaired of life, but I would be wrong and I'll be lying to you today to tell you that I haven't stood, sat under that juniper tree and said, I just can't do it anymore. I just, I just because. You know, I, I preach my guts out on Sunday sometimes, and it don't seem to matter. You know, I, I, we, I do, we do everything that we can to increase the, and enhance, and then churches that seem to just grow are people that pass out cookies and coffee. You know, and then, then you start measuring yourself. Then I want to be critical. Then I want to go into judging those other churches, and I've attempted to do so. And then when I look at it, I can find no reason to be critical because I arrive at the place and say it's not my responsibility to dictate what they preach or teach. But my responsibility is to preach what God puts in my heart. Whatever he puts in my heart when I lay my head on his bosom. But at the same time, Elijah was a man subject to passions just like I am. And so that helps me because I just know, you know what? It's not always easy. And I found myself under the juniper tree. And I want to talk to you about under the juniper tree. The juniper tree is where you go when you don't want to do this anymore. Some of you men have been there. And if you're not there, you're going to probably be there again. The sacrifice of faith. What do you mean do this anymore? The sacrifice of faith. Under the juniper tree, for some people it might be sin. For others it may not be. For some it's a lifestyle that people run to. It might be an addiction, a habit, or a relationship. When they're just tired of walking. Remember what John said? John the Beloved said, walk in the light as he is in the light. But how many you know that involves sacrifice and mortification of your flesh? 
That involves change to your person and your personality. And sometimes you just get your flesh is just screaming within you and you reach that place where you just don't want to do it anymore. For other people, it might not be a, a, a lifestyle, but it might be a mindset, a temperament, or an attitude. For some, others may never know that you've under the juniper tree. The reality is most of you have no inclination whatsoever when I got up here on a Sunday morning that all week I sat under a juniper tree because I have an ability to either mask it or to move beyond it. But for other people, we know, we know every time that you're under the tree because you become reckless, you become loose, and you become immoral. Your flesh is revolting against the weight of the cross that God's given you, and, you're, and you seemingly want everybody to know it about your frustration. For Elijah, it would have looked like, you know what he looked like on the outside? He looked like a middle-aged man who was tired from his journey. If you'd have walked past, your first thought might have been like, oh, well, there's another homeless man, sir. Can I help you get to the shelter? You might have brought him uh, some uh, McDonald's meal or something like that and just left it there for him. I don't know. For others, you may have just said, man, he's just tired. He's got a staff. He's been out, uh, you know, he's been out uh, on a jog or something. He's just tired. Let him rest. And you didn't know that his prophetic destiny was hanging in the balance because he was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was struggling, and he just didn't want to do it anymore. And I'm just trying to be honest with you today that I've, I've been there many times in my, in my own personal life. There's a couple of things that I learned about being under the juniper tree. I found my God to be gracious because when he was under the juniper tree, and he was, you know what he was? He was downcast. He was depressed. He was kind of just frustrated. And I'm telling you what that begins to affect you physically. And it wasn't long before he just kind of laid down. You know what? He laid down. He didn't care if he woke back up. But you know what? When he woke up, he felt something on his shoulder. And he's not supposed to feel anything on his shoulder because he's by himself in the wilderness. And when he wakes up, an angel of God is standing there. The ministering spirit sent forth to minister to heirs of salvation. And I want you to think about what he did. He had a cake that angelic hands had taken and had patted out and put it on a coal of fire. Put it on coals, and, 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 and flame was heating it up in a cruise of water, and it shook him up, shook him, and he said, wake up, Elijah, and eat it. And so he woke up and, eat it, and he ate it, excuse me, and then he went back to sleep. And we don't know how long he slept, but then he feels that nudge on his shoulder again. When he feels that nudge on his shoulder, once again, it's the angel, and he looks, and he ate the cake previously, now there's a new cake. And in that new cake, here's what the angel says, arise, Elijah. You can read that on down on your own. I believe that is the seventh verse. He says, arise and eat. And I love what he said there in the seventh verse. He said, the journey is too great for you if you don't eat. And you know what I found that begins to help me begin to move from underneath the juniper tree back to the place where I can hear the voice of God? You know what it is? It's my daily devotion. The reason why that I'm able to gain the courage to get up out, of the, out from under the juniper tree is I thank God that even when I'm downcast, even when I'm disheartened, I still renew my mind by the Word of God. And I still agitate the gift of the Holy Spirit who's on the inside of me by drinking of living water. And I want you to know today, that's something, guys, that's something you got to do. Whether you feel like it, whether every time they tell you to go to chapel, you're like, I don't want to go to chapel. I want to lay right here on this bed and sit under the juniper tree. 
I don't want to hear what that speaker's got to say. I don't want to hear him challenging me. I don't want to hear him tell me about my destiny and the call of God. I just want to lay here in my self-pity, in my sorrow, and wallow in my apathy, and wallow in my addiction, and wallow in my habits. But what I want you to know is when God says, get up and go, you need to get up and go because there is a bread, uh, is bread that's baked for you, for you. Because the journey's too great. The journey's too great if you don't feed your own soul. And so the story then goes, guess where he went? Notice this is exciting. He went to Horeb or Sinai, the mountain of God. I want you all to think about that with me for just a moment of time. I thought about that and I tried to put all this together and say, God, why didn't he go to church? Why didn't he go to the temple? Well, the temple, the, the king of Judah at that time was in agreement and harmony with the king of Israel. And he might have felt like if he exposed himself to the priesthood and the lineage of the king of Judah that he might have been turned over to Ahab. And so the Lord directed him to Horeb. And when he did so, there was something that happened in Elijah's life. And I'm telling you, it's a powerful thing, and I want you all to go there with me as we get ready to shift and transition this, this message because I believe that God sent me here today to help somebody who has sat too long under the juniper tree. And you need to hear the voice of God today that God says, I want you to get up and I want you to journey and I want you to go to Mount Horeb. I want you to go to the place where you can hear the voice of God. I want you to go to the place where everything can be brought right in your life. I want you to go to the place where your spiritual equilibrium can line itself back up again. Where that the word of God can be resounding in your heart and you can be awakened to the call of God fresh and new in your heart and life. And so Elijah makes this journey. And did you know that commentaries tell us that, that it, the, the Bible says it took him 40 days. But did you know most commentaries tell us that the, uh, the amount of space between where he was at outside of Beersheba and what they believe is Mount Sinai was about 10 days. Why would it take him 40 days to get there? Because God was leading him on this journey and he was connecting him to something. He was connecting him to Moses' experience on Mount Sinai. Now, I don't want you to forget that because it's going to come full circle in a way that you have never seen it before in just a few moments. But does anybody remember when God came down on Mount Sinai? You ought to know it because I tell you about it quite often. Because I try to tell you how significant it was in the history of mankind that before that veil was torn, God was revealing himself to the children of Israel as the one true God. It was so significant. If we could, we fail to grasp the significance of that moment, how God came down on the mountain and said, the cultures, the nations around you, they're worshiping in a plurality of gods. But God said to Israel, thou shalt have no other God before me. You know why? Because there ain't none. God's sitting in heaven. He's looking around. There ain't nobody at his left or right hand. Right? Just God. And God said, it's just foolishness. And so God gave him a law and he gave him commandments. And you know what happened when Moses came back down from the mountain he had been up there with God, and the people were, had, had grown, you know, like they were kind of grown weary, so they made and erected the golden calf, and so they were worshiping, and so he, the golden calf, and, and Moses himself break the commandments, and he goes back up into the presence of God. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he abode in the presence of God, and he neither ate bread nor drank water. And when Elijah left the juniper tree, he went 40 days and 40 nights without another bite of food, talking about a keto diet, Without a, another drink of water, 40 days he went in the strength of that moment because God was connecting him to his spiritual heritage. And he was bringing him back to the place where God had first chosen to reveal his glory. 
And he took him to Mount Horeb. And the Bible says that he went into a cave. Isn't that what you read right there in the 8th verse? And he came thither unto a cave. Did you know that many theologians believe that that cave was the cleft in the rock? That Moses had stood in and beheld the glory of God? I'm telling you, wouldn't you stay, sing the song, I'm standing on holy ground? If you could be in Elijah's there, and in his mind, he's rechasing the events that have taken place. And now he's not, he's not being engrossed with Baal worship and with the sound of, of the followers of Baal. But in that singular moment, he can begin to reawaken his calling and his purpose. And he can be reminded of the goodness and the love of God when God revealed himself on the mount. And when he revealed his glory in the cleft of the rock. That's a powerful story. It's in Exodus chapter number 33 when Moses was so moved by the presence of God. He said, God, let me see your glory. We sing that in our songs and our worship. That's why we bring you in here on Sunday. That's why we have a security guard. That's why we welcome you off of the parking lot into this place. Because for a few short minutes, out of the busyness of your life, out of the craziness of this world, we want you to stand in the presence of a living God and see His glory. Because when you truly see the glory of God, and I'm not talking about with the natural eye. You can take our eyes out. You can stuff all our ears. And we can still see and still hear the glory of God. And experience His presence in our lives. And so Elijah found, him, found, found himself in a familiar place. Not familiar to him, but familiar to the people of God and the histories of God's people. And while there, a question is posed to him. He was here, but now he's here. And God comes to him and says, what doest thou here, Elijah? I wrote it in my notes. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. What doest thou here? And then Elijah does something that I found is necessary. He pours out his complaint to God. Let me help you today. The greatest thing, one of the greatest things that you can do to enhance and deepen your relationship with God is to be honest. God already knows so why are you trying to hide? Why are you trying to mask your emotions? Elijah is asked the same question twice. What doest thou here? He answers both times the exact same way. Look what he said there. Let's go ahead and read that particular verse. It's in verse number 10. Here's where he's at. He's moved from here. but He's not fully where he needs to be just yet. And he says, I've been zealous for the Lord God. I've done everything I know to do. I preached all the sermons you told me to. I've studied, I've prayed, I've done everything. And yet the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Hmm. They tore down your altar, God. And they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I only am left. Nothing. No response from the Lord. And so the Lord tells him to do something. Go forth, 11th verse, into the mouth, the mouth of the cave. Are y'all out there today? I feel the Holy Spirit in this. Y'all stay with me. And there in the mouth of the cave, the very signs that happened generations ago are repeated right in front of Elijah. The fire from God falls. The wind blows and the rocks quake. But three times the writer of Scripture says, but God wasn't in the earthquake, he wasn't in the wind, and he wasn't in the fire. But then, a still, small voice. 
I wrote it in my notes this way. Sometimes God's voice is not in all the signs and the wonders of the church. Sometimes that's not the place where it all gets made right in your life. The Lord speaks to him and says, here, go to the mouth of the cave. And then the record is he took his mantle. Mantle was a cloth garment. It might even have been a Hebrew prayer shawl. And he put it over his head. The Bible says he literally wrapped his head in the mantle. And in the mantle, that voice spoke to him. And I want you to see the power of that voice. Because church family, if you can ever hear that voice, it'll change your entire perspective. It'll lift you from the depression of underneath the juniper tree and it'll set uh, you back on the course of regaining your spiritual vitality. He asked him again with his head wrapped in the mantle, what doest thou here, Elijah? And once again, Elijah said the same thing. I'm here because they have killed the prophets of the Lord. They've thrown down your altars. I've done everything I know to do. And now I look around and all the other prophets are gone. And then here's something that I noted in my own personal studies. And God seemed to give this to me today. The Lord said to him, notice this. Notice what's absent from the voice of God. Dialogue. Sympathy. Compassion. God doesn't dialogue with Elijah, well, Elijah, if you'll just do this. Or Elijah, if you'll, you know what, well, I understand, you know, you're having a tough day. The prophetic voice of God in the spiritual ear of the prophet gives him three words. Go, return, and anoint. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, that just seems like, it just seems like it's not compassionate from God. And then I thought about the power of the word of God for just a moment. And I thought about how the power of his voice has the ability to change everything. When God looks at darkness, he says one word, light. When God sees the storm, he says one word, peace. Come on, when Lazarus was in the grave, he said, come forth. And so he took the man of God that prophetically had stood against the apathy of Baal worship and now sat down, despaired of life and wanted to die and carried that despair all the way to Mount Carmel. The God that speaks to the innermost being in him said, all I want you to do is get up, go back and get your anointing out because I'm not through with you yet. I still got a purpose. I still have an anointing. I still have a call on your life. And when I heard that, I said, now, God, I know. Now I know, God, how come there's been so many times that I've sat under the juniper tree and I wanted to quit, I wanted to do something else, I wanted another career, I wanted another occupation. But when I wrapped my head in this mantle of prayer, I heard the voice of God. And he said, go back down on Sunday morning at 1030, square your shoulders back, lift up your voice, preach the word of God, challenge the people, charge the people, minister to them, because that's what I called you to do. Who are we? Who are we to argue with God? We're here for His purposes. In Him I live. And in Him I move. And in Him I have my very being. And I have found that my contentedness is found in Him. I'm complete in Jesus today. And I'm complete when I'm being faithful to His cause and His purpose in my life. I can't measure myself beyond. I can't measure myself. I can't put our church and compare it with new life. I can't compare our church to the Methodist church. 
I can't go online and look at the mega churches all around the United States and find myself, because if I do, I'll find myself about this tall. All I can do is hear his voice in a prayer mantle. Him saying, get up, Lee. Go fill your anointing cup. Take it. I've still got things for you to do. There's some other ministers. They need what you got. Did you hear that? I feel the Holy Spirit on that. He said, there's some ministers. Elisha's out there. He's, he needs what you got. There are times I don't mind uh, to tell you this. There are times I'm like, man, I've been doing this for 30-something years. I want, I, there's, I want to do something else. And then I think to myself, I think to myself, I'm trying to be honest with you today. I think I said, there are people that need what I got. There's a, a younger generation of young ministers and in our generation today, I want you to know I believe that the gift of preaching is being lost. And I pray that maybe through myself and many others perhaps like me, that we can agitate the call of preaching. Preaching is still an art. It's still an art that's necessary. We preach the gospel. I believe in teaching. I believe in sharing and expounding. I believe in all those things. But I want you to know today that the power of the cross is revealed in its greatest uh, uh, revelation when somebody stands in front of you with a prophetic voice and preaches through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the mystery of preaching. It's a lost art in our generation, and we need it. You and I need it. We need men and women who have that gift in their life. And so when I, when, I, when I want to give up and I want to quit and I want to sit under the juniper tree and say, I don't want to do this anymore, God says, there's an Elisha that you got to anoint. And let me even, can I go a little bit farther today? I want to, I want to finish this the right way. It's in my heart to do this. I, I studied this out in all different areas and I looked at it. Now, you and I are familiar. We're familiar with the call of Elisha. Aren't we? Remember that? He was, called, he was told to go anoint Haziel. He was told to anoint Jehu. And he was told to anoint Elisha. But the biblical record only tells us that he came to Elisha. There's no record, Shane, of him ever going and anointing Jehu and Haziel. Now those two men would become instruments in God pronouncing judgment upon the apostasy of Israel. Haziel was the king of Damascus, and, or he, he, he became the king of Damascus. He was violent in his wrath on Israel. Jehu was anointed to exterminate the house of Ahab. But there's no record that Elijah ever did, but you know who did? Elisha did. Elisha did. Because when that anointing that was in Elijah began to, in, began to connect with the spirit of Elisha, God began to multiply his ministry. And so I still believe that God's called Heber Springs First Assembly to be a tool of revival to this north central Arkansas. I do that. But you know what I've also accepted in my own life? Whether I live to see it with my own eyes or not doesn't matter. As long as, in the future, an Elisha will take the mantle and do what God's called him to do. And the anointing of God can begin to move from generation to generation to generation. And the power of his presence and the power of his Holy Spirit can move. It's then that we can find ourselves contented in the call of God in our own life. Come on, somebody. I came to this house to tell you today, if you've been under the juniper tree, it's time for you to get up.
and make your way to Horeb. Now, Horeb could be this sanctuary. Hello? Horeb can be a worship song. Horeb can be the sermon that I preached. Or Horeb can just be being alone with God in your backyard somewhere. The key is that you have to hear that voice in your spirit. Because when you hear that voice in your spirit, you gain the encouragement that you need to be who God's called you to be. Now, I'm closing this message, and the worship team's going to join us. We're going to worship because we're going to pray here today. I'm here, and I'm prepared to minister to people. My spirit is encouraged. My spirit is truly encouraged today. God's reminded me of the gift that he's put inside me, the calling inside me. He's agitated that anointing in my life to encourage you. But I started this message off, and I want you to hear this today. I started this message off by saying, you have to see yourself in this passage. This past Friday, I saw myself, and God brought healing to my spirit. But you have to see yourself. Let's be honest. It's easy to sit right here. And it's a lot harder to go here. Come on, somebody. Amen? Are y'all following that today? It's easy to sit. It's easy to revert. It's easy to go back to your habits, your addictions, to your mindset, to your temperament, to your wallowing and self-pity. Whatever it is that you do, wherever you sit, when you just don't want to do this any longer. But the voice of God is calling you today. Let's go from there to here because God wants to awaken in the call and the call of God in your life. Our worship team is going to join us on the platform. And I'm going to call you forward here in just a moment of time. As they come, would you just have your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment of time. And I want you to begin to set yourself 